Welcome to the Sales Transformation Podcast. We've got our annual Global Sales Transformation event coming up on Thursday, the 7th of October, held as we normally do at the illustrious London Stock Exchange. And in preparation for the event, I wanted to share some of the past talks to give you a flavor of what GST is all about. I'm super excited for the event and to see some faces, especially with the past 18 months we've had. Well, this podcast episode is from Baz Gray, a modern day explorer, Antarctica explorer, who specializes in extremely cold climates. Baz is a former regimental sergeant major of the Royal Marine Commandos, who spoke at our GST event in 2019 about how to build a positive mindset, which I think is extremely important in the world of sales. A really insightful talk, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So I'm going to hand over to the next speaker quite soon. Um, before he comes up, if I could just explain why have we asked Baz to come here? Well, I can't think of many people who have developed such sort of mental resolve and toughness <laughs> to be able to do some of the things that Baz has done. And I would, uh, we've asked Baz to come here. He's known to... Carl Day, who's very kindly introduced us to, to Baz, as someone that um, is a fantastic speaker and uh, quite motivating in what he's doing. And I think we're going to learn a lot about how to build mental resilience from, um, from Baz. So could we give the warm round of applause? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. The edge of Antarctica, Hercules Inlet, 730 miles from the South Pole, the coldest, the windiest and driest place on our planet. One of the most inhospitable places on Earth, bar none. How does a man like me standing in front of you end up standing there? Well, it's quite an incredible story. It's a story that has a little bit of everything, of failure, of adventure, of excitement. And it very, very much rings true throughout from a young kid, the title of your presentation of your seminar uh, today, Pushing Boundaries. I was a very, very quiet kid, very little confidence. I was never outspoken. I had a very small friendship group that kept ourselves to ourselves, but I was hugely adventurous right from a young kid. If my mum wanted to come and find me, she'd be looking up as opposed to looking across the streets. I'd be up a tree once, once upon a time, as a seven-year-old boy, my mum got a dramatic phone call telling her that her seven-year-old son was running around the roof of a four-storey block of flats dressed as Spider-Man. I had managed to climb up into the loft, climb out the Velux window, and I was running around because it was my birthday and I just got this brand-new suit and my mum nearly killed me that evening. But that's the sort of kid I was. Still quiet, not very confident, not a great group of friends, until something happened when I was 14 years old. I was a forces child. My dad lived a forces life. We moved all over the world. And when I was 14 years old, we were living in Cyprus. Beautiful place to live, on the beach every day, playing with my friends. And I, I really enjoyed where we were in the life I had. But on this one particular day, it was to change my life forever. And it was to bring out that confidence and to turn me into a completely different person. And that was down to an organization called the Royal Marine Commandos. I'm sure most of you have heard of 
who they are. They are our elite just below the special forces, our SCS and SPS, the Royal Marines just sit in, the, in a little space underneath that environment. And they are our elite normal level soldiers, if you like. And they came to my school, St. John's Schools in Episcopi, and they just did a day of presentations. Even though I'd lived a forces life, I'd never had any idea who they actually were. I'd probably sort of heard of them in the background, but until they did a day of presentations with me that day, I had no real idea or understanding as to who they were and what they did. But something inside me told me that that's who I was, that's what I wanted to do and go and become. And before my 17th birthday, I had passed out and completed the most gruelling military training course on earth. 32 weeks at Commando Training Centre at Limpston. Um, I had no idea whether I was good enough, fit enough, strong enough. I was the grey by name, grey by nature type character. I stuck, didn't fail at anything, I didn't excel at anything. I was just the middleman and I was just hanging in there. It's not something I would recommend any 16 year old to go through. It was one of the toughest things I'd ever been through. But the fact that I did get through it and I did hang in there told me so much about me and myself that I didn't even know at the time. It took other people to tell me and, and, and sort of make me aware of, of who I was and who I was, who I was becoming at this very early age. I went on to serve all over the globe, from Northern Ireland, pre the ceasefire of 1994 on the streets, in Iraq, in Kosovo, and a few tours of Afghanistan to, to finish the career towards the end. Within the Royal Marines, there's a specialist branch called the Mountain Leaders. These guys are responsible for teaching extreme cold weather and extreme mountainous training in a military context to all of the UK armed forces. They're a group of only about 70 guys that are an elite little organization within the Royal Marines. They also provide that level of support and training to our SAS and our SBS. They're held in that high regard. They embed Royal Marine Mountaineers instructors within their own ranks to train and deliver expertise within those environments. I decided late, sort of midway through my career around 1997, 1998, that I wanted to become one of those specialist Romney mountain leaders and take my um, levels, if you like, to a, you know, to, a, to a different step, to a higher degree. I wanted to keep pushing myself even further, not just to be a Royal Marine, but to be the best Royal Marine. And I did that and I passed the gruelling eight months Royal Marine Mountain Leader 2 course um, by, by the end of 1999, which has seen me teach, train, mentor people in the most gruelling places on the planet. Not just to survive, but to thrive, to be able to fight wars, to be the best in any given environment on a global scale. My job was to deliver the instructors and the people to deliver the rest of this training to thousands and thousands of people on a global scale. Throughout our British military, the US military come over to Norway every year to learn from, from our guys as well. And again, another one of my proudest moments in my military careers like was to become the chief instructor of that entire organization. A huge amount of responsibility for what is a lowly middle level management in, in your speak color sergeant responsible for the safety in some of the most extreme places on earth of thousands of people. Um, it was an incredible opportunity. And I throw this word in now, inspiration, because I think it is so important to life. I think it is so important to understand what it really means and to just to think about that word. 
To be inspirational, you need to know how to be inspired. And there is so much more to just being a Hollywood A-list actor or a celebrity footballer. The word inspiration is a really, really powerful word if understood properly. If you are an inspirational people, a person, that means you will be having an effect on those people around you. Inspirational people make other people's lives better because they learn from you. They want to learn from you because you're an inspiring person. And then if you can learn why that person's inspiring, then perhaps you can become more inspiring yourself. The two are linked. And my life followed an inspirational man for many, many years now. Since 2005, I was sent to join this ship. It's called HMS Endurance at the time, in 2005. And my job on this ship was to protect the 122 people serving on board that ship, Royal Navy, British Royal Navy. This is the Antarctic patrol vessel or the UK's presence within Antarctica on an annual basis. My job was to keep them alive in Antarctica, basically, to make sure they had the right clothing, the right equipment and the right training to be able to go ashore and do their jobs properly. So when the weather came in, I, had, I gave them the knowledge to be able to look after themselves as well, be on the ground with them to make sure that they're all OK. And when you're in this environment, when you're down at the edge of the earth, you cannot help but fall in love with it. On a day like this, it's the most beautiful place on earth. It can also be the worst place on earth at the flick of a switch. Whilst wandering around the ice caps on my own, at the bottom of the earth, opportunities to get out and stand on places where people had never, ever been before, I started to think about history. I started to think about discovery. I started to look back and think about the amazing people that first came down to this part of our planet. And I discovered this man, Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton, an absolutely incredible man when it comes to leadership, understanding people, and looking after and getting the best out of teams in any given, uh, any given situation, especially when it's gone absolutely wrong. And I will point out that almost everything this man set out to achieve in his life, he failed at. But those failures have taught us more about leadership, understanding people, understanding the Antarctic, understanding exploration than almost anyone else on Earth. He does not stand alone. I've just singled him out as my inspiration. I still hold Amundsen and Scott and all the other people of what we call the heroic polar age, pre-1920, um, as absolutely outstanding people that could, we can still today learn so much about. Almost every single university on our planet has some sort of Shackleton leadership project within the syllabuses within those universities. Oxford, Cambridge certainly do, Harvard certainly does. What this man tried to do was be the first man to walk to the South Pole across the continent. When we were still discovering what it looked like, what the outline of Antarctica was, we had a fair idea back then, but we didn't 100% know. And in 1903, he set off on the Discovery Expedition, where he was a part of the expedition, Scott's first expedition in an attempt to get to the South Pole. He ended up being injured back home. He was part of the, the party, the sledge party, that attempted to get to the South Pole. And they didn't get anywhere near it. They had to turn around. They got the supplies wrong. They didn't really understand diet back then. And they were far too fatigued to continue to the pole. They turned around and came back. Shackleton came back, a bit of a hero, a bit of a legend. All the stories, because he was in Blindy back before Scott, he got all the limelight. First, he was the guy being interviewed, going around telling stories to people, and he became a bit of an iconic landmark, if you like, within Great Britain. 
And in 1907, he raised the funds to go back down and have another go on the Nimrod expedition, his first major expedition, his attempt to hit the South Pole under his own steam. And he became the first man or the, the man to get the closest to the South Pole up to that point. Once again, he had to turn back, not quite meeting his mark, 97 miles from the South Pole. Because he knew he could make the pole, but he couldn't be 100%, he would get back. The team were too tired, too fatigued, so he made that you know, outstanding and correct leadership decision to turn around and save his men for the sake of, of the South Pole. Then in 1911, the Norwegian pipped the two Brits to the post. In the December 1911, Roll Amundsen did manage to take a team all the way to the South Pole. He, he walked in from the Bay of Wales down here, up to the South Pole, um, and a month later, Scott, in his second attempt, also reached the South Pole. But most of you will know from history, Amundsen did return back safely and told the world of his adventures. Scott and his team didn't. They all perished on the ice shelf, about 11 miles from their last case, their last resupply, and they were all found um, a month or so later, and they all lost their lives in the process. Shackleton's dream of being the first to walk to the South Pole was now quashed. So he had a new plan. He had a new idea. And this was the endurance expedition. And this is what that man's most famous for. And it's why he's one of my biggest inspirations and the way I've gone about a lot of, a lot of my life. And we can still learn a huge amount from him. He decided he wanted to take an expedition across the entire continent from one side the Ron Filchner Ice Shelf via the South Pole all the way down to the edge of the Ross Ice Shelf. No one had obviously ever done that before, and it still wasn't actually conquered until 1958, because once again, it wasn't to happen for Shackleton. He put a team of 28 men together, 28 of the best people, the best team that he could put together in order to go and attempt this thing. And straight away, right at the start, He's not looking for the best individual in every single individual field that they are coming to him offering their services. Thousands and thousands of people from all over the world volunteered for this expedition. Geologists, photographers, you know, normal, just normal low-deck deckhand sailors with, with no real expertise, scientists, geologists. But what Shackleton did at every single interview was try to get a little bit more out of the man. He knew he could do his job, of course he could, but what's it gonna be like under pressure? Who's the man gonna be then? Who is that guy if we get stuck or we have problems or we lose our ship or if anything happens in Antarctica, who's the guy then? And he would probe them with all sorts of different types of questions that they weren't expecting. And he selected a team of people he knew he could work with and that would be the best team for the expedition, not necessarily the best individuals in their field. And he was an absolute genius and master at doing that. On the 8th of August, the outbreak of the First World War, his ship set sail for Buenos Aires before heading down to Antarctica. He did offer his ship and all its supplies and men to the king in support of the war effort. He got a simple one-word telegram back telling him to proceed. And proceed he did. Via Grit Viken in South Georgia, he headed down towards the polar ice cap, down towards the South Pole, the edge of Antarctica in order to lay his ship and all the supplies on the ice shelf before then making his way inland uh, as planned. It was not to be. The ice, the sea around Antarctica, freezes and falls with the seasons. This year, it was particularly far north. His ship got trapped in what we call the pack ice. This is by the 21st of January, 1915. He left 
on the 5th of December 1914 from Gritviken. And this is the ship set be fast in the ice. They had to live on that ship as a winter quarter through an Antarctic winter because once it became beset, they couldn't free it. This is January. The ship is now starting to arch over in the October of that year. So they've now spent an entire Antarctic winter, temperatures down to minus 60 degrees, winds in excess of over 100 miles an hour, complete pitch black darkness, 24 hours a day. And this became obviously a complete surprise to the entire company. They didn't go down there expecting this to happen to them, but it did and they just had to get on with it. By the 21st of November, the ship sank, was crushed by the pack ice and sunk to the bottom of the sea. You now have 28 men on an ice shelf in Antarctica, no way of knowing or telling the rest of the world where they are, no way or any chance of rescue. They're on floating ice, not even anywhere near land. What are they going to do? How do you hold a team like that together? How do you pull yourself out of that situation? There is absolutely no way on paper that they can get themselves out of this. Shackleton simply said to the crew, our ship's gone, now let's go home. On board the ship were these three lifeboats, about 22 foot to 23 foot in length for varying sizes, no different to what you'll have on, on most other ships. And he knew what he had to do was live as best he could on the ice flow. And then once the sea started falling again in the warmer weather, he would take to the sea in these boats and try and row them to land as best he can. And it wasn't until the April 1916 that that actually happened. So if you think back to January 1915, stuck on the ice, living in the ship till the November, then living on the ice all the way through till the following April in horrible conditions where the ice is starting to melt. You've got to crawl across the surface in this slushy, horrible, horrible conditions until eventually it broke up enough to take to sea in these boats. Now, this is one of the most horrific weeks I could ever possibly imagine, and I've been in some pretty horrific places. He put three teams together in the three separate boats, and they had to row to land. This row took six days, six days of non-stop rowing, no opportunity to stop and feed yourself properly, constantly hyperthermic, feet freezing, hands freezing. If they stopped rowing, they would have drifted out to sea, and they would have been never seen again. It's amazing what you can do when the alternative is death, and that would have been the only alternative for these people. They eventually landed on this spit of land called Elephant Island. No one had ever stepped foot on this land at the time. Nobody. But there was nobody would ever even think of looking for them here. They were nowhere near any in or inhabited land where they could actually raise the alarm and try to get some proper support. So Shackleton knew he had to put a boat together make it as seaworthy as he possibly can, used his chippy, a guy called McNeish, to make the boat as seaworthy as possible. They made some makeshift sails, and he had to attempt a journey which has been described by Sir Edmund Hillary as one of the most remarkable survival journeys ever told. He had to take six men, put them in this boat, and try and make it back to South Georgia to raise the alarm. That was 800 nautical miles away. A spit of land 150 kilometres long, navigating only by the stars and the sun, using only a sextant, an almost impossible task. He set off on that journey um, late April 1914, and by somehow, some unbelievable, almost impossible stroke of luck, he managed to make it to South Georgia, the wrong side of South Georgia. There were nearer places he could have got to, but remember, this was not a sailboat. This could not tack into wind and turn around. It had to go with the wind and tide. 
So it only had one possible direction it could go to, and on that direction that they could potentially sail the first hospitable land or the first land of people on was where they started back in South Georgia. They land on the wrong side of South Georgia. They then have to climb the mountains of South Georgia. No one had ever been across the mountains of South Georgia, and they didn't have mountaineering equipment, and they certainly weren't mountaineers. And by the time they got to South Georgia, they hit a place called King Harkin Bay. They then had to leave three of them behind because they were so incapacitated, and Shackleton and two of us led the route across South Georgia, and they made it into Stromness Harbour. Raised the alarm, and then very quickly went round and picked up the three guys he'd left behind. This was now May, middle of May, 1916. It wasn't until October that year that he managed to get a ship on the fourth attempt called the Yelko from the Chileans to get back to Elephant Island to pick up the other 22 men, not even knowing if they'd still be there, not knowing if Frank Wildey's number two had been given or had decided to, Shackleton was never going to come back, I need to go and attempt my own rescue, not knowing if anyone had perished or died on the island. He had no idea what he was going to walk into or sail into on that particular day. And every single man was alive. All 22 men were still there. Shackleton brought every single man back home from the almost depths of impossibility. Uh, an absolutely incredible piece of leadership to keep those men together, to keep them mentally strong, mentally sane through those horrific times and conditions um, was, was um, you know, the, the major reason why I'm so inspired by him throughout my military career. In 2013, his wonderful granddaughter, Alexandra Shackleton, decided on the 100th anniversary that she'd like someone to try and go and do what her grandfather did. Quite a few people had attempted to do this little boat journey from Elephant. In fact, there have been four credible attempts in similar-sized boats, but in modern clothing, modern equipment. None of them were successful. But she decided she wanted us to do it authentically in the same way that he did it 100 years ago, using only the same kit, only the same equipment, clothing, food, navigational techniques, everything. And for some bizarre reason, a team of six crazy, wacky people decided they'd give it a go on, on, her, on her behalf. This is me on the right um, and Seb Coulthard on the left and the whole team here on the beach, led by the second guy from the left, a British-Australian dual nationality, Tim Jarvis. He was the guy approached by Alexandra Shackleton. He brought me in as the team mountaineer. We got... Um, Ed Wardle on the left, who's climbed Everest five times now. He's an amazing cameraman. He was the embedded documentary guy, film guy. Um, Nick Bubb in the middle there was our skipper, navigator Paul Larson. Between them, they've got over 10 world records at sea. Um, incredible sailors um, and uh, a Navy guy, um, Seb Coulthard, who was the engineer and responsible for building the boats, etc., etc. An incredible team. Not necessarily the best individuals in their field, but together as a team, he did exactly what Shackleton did. He put the right people in the boat to get a job done. People who knew when to shut up and people who knew when it was their turn to lead. And guys who could follow, guys who could listen, guys who could also speak at the right time. It was incredible how we gelled as a team. And we set off from Elephant Island, exactly the same spit of land as he did in 2013. And life on board, I can assure you, was horrific. We had the space the size of an average size double bed between five, six of us. There was always someone up top steering and keeping the boat on the right direction. We were only navigating, again, using a sextant. We had absolutely no modern techniques or modern equipment whatsoever to 
help us through the situation that we were in. It was all done. Even the cooker was the same cooker as they used. The diet wasn't the same because they killed a lot of penguins, they clubbed a lot of seals to death, and they used what they could get their hands on, and there was, there was plenty of that on the island of Elephant Island. So we had a calorific diet that was pretty much matched and, and, and similar. Um, so we had no more food than they had. And eventually, somehow, we managed to also make it to King Harkin Bay. Um, and our journey was actually a, a little bit quicker. It was two days quicker. We took us 15 days. It took Shackleton 17 days. That's only because the wind conditions were different. If you went the following week, it could have taken us 20 days or 14 days. You'd never know what wind you're going to get. And we landed on this island of Elephant Island. And it was then my job to step up as the mountaineer responsible for then leading the team across um, South Georgia. I had fortunately done it before. I knew the route. I had huge advantages over, over Shackleton. We clearly were not as fatigued as he was. We hadn't been living on the ice for a year and a half, um, but we were in quite a bad way. 17 days with very little sleep. Three of our team, very much like Shackleton, succumbed to severe injury that stopped them doing the crossing of South Georgia in the form of trench foot, which is absolutely horrific injury um, once it's allowed to, to, to set in. So it was only myself and Tim Jarvis that were left in the authentic gear and equipment that were fit enough to attempt the crossing of South Georgia. Again, with no mountaineering equipment, with no um, supplies or stores, proper mountaineering equipment to get us across. And it's a lot more dangerous place to cross now because of global warming. A lot of the ice shelves have now receded. The crevasse risk is so much worse. So underneath this plain um, blanket of whiteness, if you like, I'm going through up to my knees, up to my waist, up to my chest, falling into crevasses quite often. And we had to make our way across the terrain of South Georgia, extremely fatigued, very little sleep in our body, very little food. And right towards the end, we almost lost our lives in, in, a, in, a, in a horrific slip. This is Tim Jarvis, six foot five. He was 30 feet back up the hill at this point, coming down a very steep, very difficult piece of, piece of terrain. Uh, and he took, a, he took a slip and only just managed to stop right by my feet. If he'd have hit me, taken me, we'd have both gone rolling down that mountain and we would absolutely would have, would, would have lost our lives. But we didn't. And we walked in from that such extreme adventure and, and you know, an amazing moment to walk in with Tim into Stromness, exactly the same place where Shackleton himself walked into over 100 years or 100 years earlier. And the most amazing thing about it was he was buried after his final expedition in 1922 in Gritviken Harbour. That's where his wife decided she wanted him to, to be. And his granddaughter, Alexandra, seen in the picture joined us by his grave after a hugely successful expedition to take a toast of his favorite whiskey with the, um, with the boss himself, which was an, you know, an absolutely life iconic moment for, for me, standing there with his granddaughter and sort of my, my hero, if you like. I had a choice to make now, because I had two major passions now in my life. I loved and had a bug for extreme adventure and extreme expeditions but I was also loving my Royal Marine career and doing quite well. And my second major passion was history, polar history in particular. And I wanted to go back down and do more in that amazing place that I'd now discovered. I couldn't do both. I achieved the rank of Regimental Sergeant Major after 26 years of service in, in the Royal Marines. 
And without becoming an officer, you can't really go any further. Your career is supposed to end around that sort of time. I could have stayed on and been a regimental sergeant major for, for many more years if I wanted to, or I could choose to draw a line under that part of my life and go on and do something different and have that new adventure in, in the outdoor, outdoor pursuits, which is what I chose to do. And very much in the theme of Shackleton, I wanted to go down and do something that had never been done before in the place that I've now grown to become absolutely hooked on. Like Shackleton, he wanted to cross the entire Antarctic continent. I now have a similar goal. But I want to do it, like Shackleton, in a way that's never been done before. Solo, unsupported and unassisted. From one side to the other, pretty much mirroring the route that he wanted to do back in 1914 to 1916. In order to do this, I knew I had the physical ability, but I wasn't quite sure I had the mental maturity yet to do a full crossing, which would be 600 miles further as a soloist than anyone had ever traveled before in Antarctica. So I had to put together the expedition that I ultimately want to do in two phases. Phase one, this is where you saw me get dropped off on the video footage right at the very start. That was me attempting to do this ultimate goal of crossing the entire continent. I've broken it down into two phases. So in October last year, I got dropped off at Hercules Inlet with an attempt to do half the continent. I traveled well, 730 miles in the end with a sled of 85 kilos, and I had a time estimate of 30 days, which would have been the second quickest time in history if I was to be successful to the pole without trying to break a speed record. But I set myself that target because of what I was going to attempt to do the following year. This had to be tough. I had to do it quick. I had to do it with a heavy sled. But most of all, I had to complete it. It turned out to be, typical for me, one of the worst Antarctic summers for weather on record since they started doing records. More snow fell in Antarctica this year, or last season, than on record, which makes pulling a sled through the snow really, really difficult. These sleds are designed to slide across rock-hard icy surfaces. Even if you get a couple of inches of soft snow, it makes it almost unbearable to try and pull the sled. So my training, I knew, would have to be quite fundamental. I decided I was going to do it. I've set myself a goal and a target now, and, and Carl's been following this with me for, for years. Um, and it, it, you know, it's great to have support um, like him from from that sort of um, you know, completely different context of the life I've normally lived. And it's fantastic, some of the conversations that, that we have about this. So I went to all the environments that I know are the right ones to get prepared for this. Northern Norway, Greenland, Svalbard, you know, up in the European Alps all the time. Getting in the gym and absolutely crucifying myself for months and months and months, but very gradually. You can't just decide I'm going next week, I'm going to start training because you're just going to get injured. My training ramps up six months before I go. I will start slowly getting back into a routine of both mental maturity and both. Um, and towards the end, as I wrap up, I will show you how, how I do that. So before you know it, I've ended up in Antarctica. I'm down in Buenos Aires. All my kit, all my equipment. You jump on this great big Aleutian aircraft. It lands on an ice runway that they clear in Antarctica above this camp where all expeditions to Antarctica pretty much end up these days. And then I'm on a plane and then I'm where we were at the start 
getting dropped off, putting my tent up, about to embark on this adventure. I got no idea how I'm going to get on, how I'm going to do. Um, and the routine just starts. You put one ski in front of the other and you just keep going. And I found out very, very quickly that the conditions this year were, were rightly... I was the last person to get dropped off on an expedition this year. Um, so I had already reports from people on expeditions that the conditions were really tough. They were all struggling. Expeditions were already starting to give up uh, and throw in the towel and get picked up because they just were not expecting the time it was going to take uh, them to get there. So I've just got a little bit of video footage that just highlights a time on the expedition where I was at quite a low place. Hi guys, it's day 21, it's 10 to 12 in the morning. We're going four and a half hours and achieved a measly six nautical miles in that time. Things just seem to be going from bad to worse at the moment. Lovely clear day yesterday, firm ground, and then completely the opposite today. So I've got ankle deep snow in places. It snowed quite heavily last night. It's continuing to snow all day today with strong winds and forecast heavy snow tomorrow. So instead of speeding up, better ground, higher altitudes, colder temperatures, I'm actually slowing down and uh, not even matching the days I was doing, the distances I was doing at the start. It won't last, it will get better I'm sure, but I'm just anxious to get going. I hit the halfway mark distance wise, I was hoping sometime tomorrow when I get to the field um, checkpoint, the field fuel cache and landing strip that ALE have in place for expedition support which is at the 85, just past the 85 degree line, which means I'll have done 5 degrees with 5 to go. I think most expeditions do do the second half quicker than the first, I'm just very hopeful. But when it comes in like this, it comes in like this. There's nothing you can do about it. I can't move any quicker. I've got to drive this big thing with me. So, just have a look. So, after today, it's 14 days to hit my 35 day mark. So it's 14 days to do the same distance I've done up to now in 21 days. So it's looking more likely I'm going to hit my 40 day window as opposed to a 35 day window at the moment anyway. And um, I've got to hit 40 days because that's when my rations run out. So I'll check in again tonight. So I was in a real dilemma here. I've got still half of Antarctica to cross. Although I att attempted to go for 40 days or 30 days, I still took 40 days worth of food just as a, as a fudge factor in case because these, these things, things do happen. And I knew now I was going to need every single one of those 40 days, which still looked at this point an, an amazingly um, you know, uh, impossible task. I was now the only expedition left out there pretty much Almost all expeditions had, had stopped and, and given up at this point. Um, but I decided with my goals for next year, I've just got to keep pushing on. I've got to keep pushing on and, and, and push on I did. Day after day, the conditions started to change. They started to get a little bit better. I started covering the distances and more that I needed to do, working 12, 14, 15 hour days 
uh, sometimes just to cover the ground and get to the South Pole, which is there before I finished my expedition. Um, and eventually you walk into this sign that tells you you're almost at the South Pole. Um, and then you walk into this wonderful little site, this ceremonial South Pole, where you get all your pictures and, 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 and all of that. Um, and it was an absolutely unbelievable thing for me mentally to have ticked off and, and achieved. Burning 10,000 calories a day, I got there in 38 days in the end. I lost two and a half stone in weight with a sled of 88 kilos when I started. 22nd man in history to do that route, third quickest in very bad conditions. So I have to put that in. And I'm the oldest Briton to do that route, which I didn't know until, until, quite, until quite recently. So just very quickly then, because I know, I know we're, we're, we're pushing on. The solid line there on the left is, is the route that I, that I took. Phase two is going to be about the dotted line. It's going to start in November 2020. It's going to take the entire Antarctic season. It's going to take probably 90 to 95 days for me to do this now on my own, um, covering well over 1,600 miles um, via the South Pole. Again, never been done. It's 500 miles further than anyone's attempted to do this unassisted and solo and unsupported. And that's what I'm planning to do. That's what I think I can do. And this is just a very quick slide to show you how I prepare. The way that I think, the things that I rule out of my life and the things that I get right. I call them my depressants because they are all depressants. If you don't go to the gym, you feel shit, don't you? If your diet isn't a very good one, you don't feel very good. If, therefore, you don't sleep very well. If you drink too much and if you smoke, we all know the dangers and the damage that that does to the body anyway. Now, I'm not a preacher that says you've got to get rid of all of these things because I do these things in abundance all the time when I'm out of training. And again, Carl will vouch for that because he taught me a lot. Um, but when you're preparing for something important in life, a presentation, something like this, you know, or, you know, something that's really key to you at home or in work or whatever it is you want to do. Being up here on the bad scale prior to whatever that event is, is not a good place to be. How can you possibly even consider thinking about performing to the best of your potential if you're living your life up there? You just physically can't. So bring them down. But decide how much yourself. This is an individual thing. How important is this to you? Therefore, how, how much should I prepare myself, my body and my mind? I need to start doing exercise. So I'll bring it, I start doing a lot of exercise. That's good. I start having a better diet. Brilliant. I start sleeping better. Brilliant. I'll cut down the alcohol. You don't have to cut it out. And I'll cut down the smoke and I'll stop smoking. You are going to be a different person literally in a day or two days. You can bring it down gradually. It's about timing and understanding when it is that you need to turn it on or turn it off. Like I said earlier, I start six months out. I come down to the poor, stroke okay, down into the good very, very gradually. So I'm as healthy and as mentally mature and ready before I start than I, that I could possibly be. Because if I'm not, only you know in your own head. It's only you that understands how much more you could have done. And you will stand there on the start line saying, I could have done better. Which brings me on to these failures and mistakes, life's journey. People have to understand that we constantly fail. We'll constantly fail at things until we die. There is no way to get around that. But failure becomes actually a, a, a good thing if we learn to understand it and question why we failed in the right way. If we do that, 
and we ask the right questions and take the right actions to not make that failure happen again, our next failure won't be quite so bad and it'll probably be a little bit further down the line. But we will fail again and we'll just draw a line under it, ask the right questions, take the right actions and our next failure will be a little bit less and it'll be a little bit further away. And eventually we will succeed at stuff. We will get better. We will become the CEO. We will be the Hollywood A-list actor. I will walk across Antarctica, but I will still continue to fail once I get there. But I'll have learned now how to deal with it and what to do about it when I do fail. That's just the way I look at it and the way I prepare myself. And I'm sure you can take something away from that. Life's an adventure. Each of us, no matter what our background, age, colour, sex or size, will consider what their adventure is in a different way to everyone else. Adventure can be long, short, tough, easy, exciting, emotional, physical, demanding, fun, exhilarating, hilarious and scary. Adventure can be a lifelong goal or done in one day. It can take years of planning or be a spur-of-the-moment idea. Each and every one of us has an adventure inside. We need to work out what that adventure is. And when we do, we need to grab it with both hands and live it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Just got time for a few quick questions, but do you, any of you have any questions about us? I've, I've got a question, but anyone have a question? Ian. So many incredible things. Thank you for sharing those with us. I'd like to go back to Shackleton and recruitment mm. because there was all sorts of things one could highlight. He spent quite a bit of time talking about recruiting the right people. I wonder if you could just connect that to what Phil said about we're living through really challenging times. Absolutely. Getting the right people during challenging times becomes even more, even more important. So I think the series of questions that you ask about the person you're trying to recruit become a slightly different set of, of questions. So when you're bringing someone into a new firm or into a, into a big company, that's very successful, but going through a difficult time. Does that individual, does that person know that? Are they aware of that? Do they understand what they're getting themselves into? Do they understand the challenges the company are going through? Should we talk to them a little bit more about that and challenge them, challenge them in, in that area? I think it's extremely important when you're recruiting that you understand or the person understands what they're getting into and they understand what their role's going to become very early. Because if they don't, six months down the line and they're saying to you, Oh, I didn't know it was going to be like this, or I wasn't aware it was going to be like that. And it's about understanding how you think they're going to cope with those challenges by putting them through and asking them questions, tough questions, about those challenges. And if people are folding at the first time you ask them a tough question, then they might not potentially be the type of person you're looking for for that particular team. Circumstances could be different. Life could be rosy and life, life could be going on brilliantly well in the company and you just need to up your manpower to, to spread out the work amongst everyone else. But you've still got to be thinking there's going to be a time where we may turn a corner, where things may dip. Look at all of the uh, examples that Phil put on the screen earlier. That's not just going to stop now. That's going to continue to happen going forward. You might not be affected by it now, but post-Brexit and later on, are we going to be then? So the difficult questions and the tough questions when you're recruiting still become valid, whether you're doing well or whether, whether you're not. And you will get individuals that are exceptional on paper. They've been recommended to you. They're brilliant. But only you know your team as bosses and as recruiters and bringing people in. 
Do they fit into your team? And if you don't understand your team or your people or the work ethic within your organization, then there's your first issue straight away. You'll be putting people into teams that aren't meant to be in those teams or working with those teams, which causes friction in the workplace and creates an absolute nightmare that sometimes if you're not looking for it, you don't see and you just start underperforming and it takes ages to work out why, because you're not realizing you've got the wrong people in the first place. So I think it's so, so important to ask the tough questions, to get the right people in the first place and to ensure that they're going to fit into what you already have in place that is being successful. I hope that answers your question. Baz, can I ask one? Please. I'm allowed to ask a question because I'm here, but um, why? You said bonkers at the beginning, but why, why, why are you doing it? I suppose a lot of it's the way, there's, there's lots of reasons and you can't go into it all in, in sort of the, the, the short period that I have, but there are lots of reasons I do what I do. A huge passion for polar history, a huge love and enjoyment of the big outdoors. You know, I would say if people didn't go on adventures, if we didn't have Sir David Attenborough type characters and people that went out and pushed boundaries, we'd all still be sat in caves. It doesn't mean everyone has to do it, but people have to do it and, and push themselves out there to learn more about the planet themselves uh, and how we can make what, what we do as a world bigger and, and better. I suppose I'm just one of those characters that loves getting out there and doing stuff. But a big part of what I do and why I do it was about what I experienced in the Royal Marines. And I've seen a lot of conflict, I've lost a lot of friends, and I've seen the effects that's had on a lot of families. Uh, and Carl and, and some of the other guys in the audience will, will back me up here. Um, so I use my expeditions, my big high profile expeditions as a platform to help tell that story about conflict, about veterans and families. I do a lot of work with children, children's foundations, and giving kids opportunities to go to places like Norway and stuff like that is very much what I'm doing now and building up in my spare time. So the expeditions really help me tell a story to a much bigger audience, a much bigger platform, and I, I get a huge amount of satisfaction from that. But I'm physically seeing a difference in a lot of children that, uh, that have worked with us and have worked with the charities that I work with. And that's one of the major benefits of, of mm -hmm. what I do and why I do it as well. Very good answer. Thank you. Can we give him a round of applause? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, there we have it. I hope you enjoyed the talk. It was great to relive some of those insights from our guest speakers. If you're interested in our upcoming Global Sales Transformation event, more information can be found on the show notes below. And we'll see you on the next episode.